Welcome to Burned by the Firewall, an Occamsec podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Burned by the Firewall. I am your host, Mike Krupka, and joining me in studio is my co-host, Davin Bateman, as well as the Nerd Whisperer, Senior Advisor at Spurrier Capital Partners, as well as Senior Advisor at Occamsec, John Quigg. John, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank you. And uh, I'm looking forward to being burned. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, so yeah, it's welcome, John. Um, so I guess we should begin by um, getting you to give us a bit about your background and um, how you got started and where you got to today. Oh, a pleasure. So uh, I, st- I graduated from West Point back in 84 in the Stone Age. I uh, was a career military intelligence officer, but I realized that the cyber world, before it was cyber, was going to be a risk factor that people didn't have a, a clue on back in the, the 90s uh, and early 2000s. So I actually transferred into cyber before it was cyber. Uh, I was the uh, chief uh, echelon above uh, operational uh, security for the Army, handled training, and uh, oversaw a lot of the early efforts uh, to put in place things like uh, enterprise firewall systems, and to get situational awareness of, of what the cyber threat was going to look like. Uh, we, we were tasked to come up with metrics, for instance, uh, and we said, okay, number of penetration events per month. And that was, that was the first set of metrics the Army used uh, to figure out how badly it was being owned. What I really came to find out was that the security space was more people than it was process, that there was a lot in it for people to hide the risk factors that were out there. And that then leavened my understanding of security heading forward. And I've stayed in it ever since. Um, I finished in the Army in uh, 2011, went to work for McAfee for a while as their, uh, as their cyber senior strategist for uh, their federal uh, workforce. Uh, and then I came back to them at the end of 2012 and said, look, Cyber Command won't have money for the next five years. I can't help you in this. So I started con- doing a consulting uh, job. Uh, which was really informative. I got to see both the federal and private uh, interchange, how trust was not being built between the federal space and the corporate space, how how the federal side didn't realize that the risk that was being imposed on them by the, the private side was in part due to its own failings in contracting and so forth, but more particularly, the federal government had no idea of the costs being imposed on the private side. The other thing that I realized after my lifetime career in the government side of the house was that if you were for profit, uh, to paraphrase my my vice president of sales at McAfee, uh, poor salespeople had skinny kids. uh, And if you were in a dollar driven organization, uh, it got attention much more quickly than in the federal space if you had a risk that was affecting the bottom line. On the, on the federal side, what the corporates didn't realize, and still don't to the most part, because there's been such a poor job communicating it, uh, the national risk, the existential risk being imposed by doing a non-devopsy, I'll build the code and make it work and secure it afterwards, was actually not just imposing risk on the, the widget, on the app, on the company, it was imposed, imposing national risks. Uh, I... I Finished up my military career um, helping stand up Cyber Command. I'm now working uh, as a senior advisor with Spurrier Capital Partners, uh, one of the best medium-sized banks in Wall Street. 
doing mergers and acquisitions, although I'd call it more uh, a, an intelligence operation where they find out needs and where they find out uh, suppliers to those needs. Uh, that being said, I've, I've been round robin from people who build solutions, people who need solutions, and people who explain what the problems are to the people who need solutions. So and I think that's good enough for now. Good stuff. Um, so yeah, in speaking with you before the show, um, you spent a lot of time researching what impacts human skills. I think you just touched upon uh, the human skills uh, that have on cybersecurity. Can you share some of your thoughts around this dynamic and why you think it's so important? Well, uh, I am uh, all but dissertation PhD. My, uh, my thesis was on attempting to measure the impact of, of human skills on the security uh, profile of, a, of a, an entity organization. Um, and what I found was that you had no mechanism to test whether a SANS certification, um, a CSSP, uh, and any of the, the professional calls that are out there mapped to a better or, left or better or worse security outcome for an organization. And I think one of the problems we, we deal with in the technical space is that people are so focused on technical solutions in our world, they're not looking at the people side. Uh, and there need to be a lot more attention paid to the metrics to it and to the outcomes. If I'm going to invest in getting you that SANS cert, I wanna know that I'm gonna have some level of surety on the far side that I'm going to improve myself, my, my level of security in the organization. There needs to be an outcomes uh, effort placed against the human space, just as there is, against going in and measuring security uh, in, in an organization where I've got X number of solutions or I have the commercial provider that's backing me. Yeah, fantastic. I think that's a great answer, John. Um, and what I want to do is is sort of interweave both the, the, the people and the technological component here and ask you a question that is a constant on all of our shows with all of our guests. And this is going to harken back to your childhood days, but... What was your favorite piece of childhood technology? Oh man, that's tough. Uh, so I'll, I'll actually flip that on its head and say, uh, what was my favorite technology that got taken away from me? So I grew up all over the world. Uh, my, uh, my father worked for uh, Qantas Airlines and then uh, became the uh, general manager of a, a, a firm called Air Pacific which is the feeder airline for the South Pacific based out of Fiji. So we're living in Hong Kong. My dad shows up and says, right, boys, we're heading off to Fiji. I've got some words of wisdom for you. Forget television. They don't have it. <laughs> I'm like, sure, <laughs> sure dad, because I was an addict. Uh, we got to Fiji, and sure enough, there's no bloody television. I searched the room. I opened the door of the little safe in the room thinking dad had hid the television in there. Nothing. Uh, and after two years of that, I got cured of TV. I actually didn't own a TV until I was 28. Um, so I think the, uh, the reason I put that to the converse is uh, lot, there wasn't a whole lot of technology in the 60s and 70s that you really had to have uh, other than a radio. But getting your time back from television and from, from the screen in front of you is huge. Yeah, I agree. I, personal anecdote, I think I, I gave up. TV when I went to get my master's degree and I realized that equation very quickly. The time that you spend on the television is, is time that you're giving up to better yourself elsewhere. So good, good, uh, good point there, John. I'm in violent agreement. Although I think a lot of people have been watching far too much television in the last year. 
<laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, or maybe not. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so John, uh, maybe I don't think we can uh, have you on without going uh, discussing uh, supply chain, uh, solar winds, and uh, the most recent um, impacts on Apple and others. So, uh, going back to two thousand eight with uh, Operation Buckshot Yankee, which led to Cyber Command um, being stood up. Um, from your perspective, who is looking at these uh, vendor risks, uh, the field of play? Um, and missed opportunities to do things they aren't doing in preparation for probably the next attack? Well, I, I think we've got a fractured command system um, and a fractured responsibility system. There are pieces in place. You know, you've got CISA, uh, you've got, uh, and through them, DHS, you've got the folks up at Fort Meade, you've got uh, people as variegated as the Secret Service and the FBI saying they've got the lead. Yet when you go to the state and local level, they've got the lead. So I haven't, I haven't been able to determine really, really who gets the tail pinned on, on the donkey. Um, I think that the, uh, the pipeline hack actually helped close the gap on responsibilities for that. But to get back to your supply chain questions, um, when I was consulting, uh, this was a services supply chain. Uh, I consulted for a, a Fortune 50 company. They had lowered their costs on security. It was a low margin business, one to 3% on a deal. I mean, huge deals, billions of dollars, but they really had to squeeze every, every cent they could out of, out of cost. So they were very proud to tell me that they'd shifted their major uh, security operation to Shanghai and that they'd gotten a fabulous deal on storage in Central Europe. And when I say Central Europe, I mean much closer to Eastern Europe. <laughs> I looked at them, I said, uh, have you done a risk assessment? And they said, yeah. And I said, when did you do it? Six months ago. And I said, now, have you gone back to revalidate that the uh, the controls that were in place six months ago uh, were, were in place today? And they said, no. So we took a look and it turned out a lot of the providers had changed. The key personnel had changed. They had no situational awareness of that. So that being said, uh, going back to your point about, or your question on Solar Sunrise, or the, the um, uh, Buckshot Yankee question, when that happened, the thing that was really interesting about it, uh, and, and none of this is classified, it's all been out, uh, out, out on the, uh, the hustings for a while, the operators, the, the four-star generals, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, looked at the comms guys and said, are you trying to tell me that I've had hostiles able to, to migrate up onto my most classified networks and then get back out again? understanding what I'm planning on a day-to-day -day basis. That hadn't happened yet. The, the, the Buckshot Yankee uh, attack had been able to get malware up onto secure networks, but hadn't exfiltrated actual data yet because it was originally uh, going after economic and political targets. But the realization that cyber had been able to, to betray plans, had fundamentally uh, been able to get at and and see what was being uh, uh, discussed at the highest level was a huge eye-opener for operational leadership. And, and just a case in point, I used to go into General Keene when he was the vice, the vice chair of the Army, and I'd start talking cyber things. And you could just see him looking at me and saying, what is this guy talking to me about? Uh, I think that when you're dealing with the operational side, whether it's the military, the government, 
or manufacturing, whatever. When the IT guy comes in to talk and starts talking about things like firewalls, you lose them. It's not until you take that metaphor by the horns and you turn it into operational speak. If you don't do this, you will not fight. That's when they get very, very engaged, when they get attention and when they focus. These are very, very bright people whose expertise is not in the things you're talking about. And unless you can change the technical into the operational, you're wasting your time and theirs. And the, the problem, I think, on the technical side is that often we don't comprehend fully the operational consequences, some of the decisions that we're making on acquisition, some of the operational consequences of our processes and procedures. And especially when you think about the service desk guy who's so irritated with his user that uh, he's going to give them the easy answer, we, we don't take the time to understand the operator's space. If, if I could, I would make every tech support person have to go live operational for two years to get what their customer's up to and vice versa. So where and why are companies still failing when it comes to, to third-party risk? And I guess, what should they be doing or how should they be thinking in preparation for the reality that's really out there? That's a great question. So um, I, I think Target changed corporate America's understanding of it because Target was the first legal case that allowed the board to be sued. The, the corporate veil of protection of being an LLC or whatever was pierced because they had knowledge of forethought that there were issues. I don't think they really understood the, the seminal risk that was posed by that, but because they had been told, they became liable. In one of my consulting gigs, we found some serious uh, holes in the security fabric and that was going to cost a lot to fix. And the legal team stepped in and said, you need to stop and stop now. Why we asked, they said, if we know we become liable. And frankly, the costs of unknowing vulnerability exceed the, or the costs of fixing the vulnerabilities you're finding exceed the cost of the penalties or any legal, legal liabilities we'd assume. And that was, that was an eye opener for me because in the government, you're like, okay, cost is no object. I got to fix it. On the corporate side, it's, you know, what's my fine versus the cost to fix. And that's, that's the bottom line. And it's always the bottom. Right. Sort of like a, a slogan that I've heard recently, I can't quite put who it might be associated with just yet. But if you think security costs a lot, just imagine what bad security costs. The joke oh. there is that, that that's one of Occamsec's new quotes that in, in an ad that's running. So um, it, to your point, right, it's, it's all about the bottom line. Um, and, and speaking about, you know, the bottom line, when it, when it gets to information security, something that's been talked about for the longest time and something that we out here in Hawaii have, have tried to become a part of as well, but it certainly uh, seems to be true that big players in the space, uh, whatever industry they're in, do not like to share information for some reason. It's still this taboo thing that I can't share what's happening with, with my environment and my company with others because of you know whatever reason. So can you discuss maybe some of the, the constraints that you know like the ISCAs um, and other information um, you know consortiums and things like that, um, the constraints that they have and how private companies can maybe effectively share information better? Absolutely. Um, and, and good point. 
I, I think the big thing is one, uh, and, and I'm going to stick with the more the more uh, cash flow intensive organizations that have to worry about things like liability, et cetera. Uh, confidentiality is one. Uh, if if I if I let the general world know that I got hit, then my shareholders, my customers, whatever, uh, start coming after me hot and heavy to find out why it was that I was allowing a known bad thing to happen. Uh, I just remember there was a tale on Wall Street when I was when I was uh, working up in New York on a regular basis. Uh, um, a uh, heavy duty hedge fund had over $100 million in losses that the partners paid out of pocket. And it was a ransomware effort. And it never hit It never hit the news because to have been found out would have cost the hedge fund a ton of its actual subscribers. They would have lost money hand over fist and been forced to do things, uh, sell assets that they hadn't planned on selling. So there's that. Um, two, if you do get hit, you are releasing uh, really important information about what your internal security setup looks like because that that is the mechanism of it is going to tell somebody what your internal security architecture looks like uh, and you become more vulnerable. And the third is a trust issue. You know, the ISACs were set, were set up to share information neutrally, but there's a there's a real a real effort going on within the government now to revisit that U.S. search working at DHS is working that to go uh, build a trust fabric and and make it so that it's uh, impregnable to outside uh, visibility. So there, I, I can open my kimono a little bit to the government and vice versa and share. The problem we've had up to date is the second anybody shares something major, it's CNN or whatever within 30 minutes. And there are examples both ways. Yeah, very good point. On that point, I know you're interested in quantum encryption. And um, and uh, we actually had a high level discussion with uh, the director of Intel for Indo-Pacific Command uh, on a previous show. But um, I was actually reading today, actually, there was um, an article on the, the thought that, okay, so quantum encryption or quantum computing is not at the point where it can break all our encryption as yet, but that is coming. And therefore, Data that has been stolen but has not been unencrypted may just be stored and they wait till they can unencrypt it later on. Um, so I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on the whole quantum encryption benefits and application of, you know, multi-key encryption that is quantum resistant. So the, I, I think it's public-private key. That's where we're at risk because once I have your public key, then I can I can turn and burn with a quantum uh, a quantum decryption solution. But to and I think I think we're already we're already uh, seeing efforts like Ironburst and others that are shredding a key and storing it non non physically uh, adjacent to to itself or non logically adjacent. Um, that's going to make it NP hard for even a quantum computer to go after. So that's that's talking the future. But to your point, uh, every sensitive communication for decades has been recorded and is on tape somewhere. Uh, in Moscow, in Beijing, whatever. And, you know, the same applies uh, for them, for our, our capture. Uh, and what what is the impact on the world to knowing the most intimate secrets that, that the leadership of the world has been pursuing for the past 50 years? I, I think that that is going to be an eye-opener. And I don't, I don't know how we preclude the consequences of that, but people need to understand that it probably is coming 
and that they need to go back and understand the consequences of that coming to light. And the same thing works on the corporate side. So really interesting answer, John. And I think you touched on, you know, some of the players that, you know, we're worried about in general, and one of them being, you know, the Chinese. And if you're paying attention to the news, if you're paying attention to the cybersecurity buzz, you know that China has been up to and continues to be up to a lot of nefarious things, we'll just say. Um, so in your opinion, or based on what you know, what like what's really going on? What are they doing? And what maybe, what are the easy, the easiest things that people and companies that might be listening to this podcast can do to protect themselves um, that maybe that they're not, or just in general, like trends that companies aren't doing that they that they can do to protect themselves against uh, those threats like China? You know, I, I don't know if you guys remember the uh, the Blue Cross Blue Shield, uh, the healthcare hacks that occurred back in like 2015 or so. Sure. So yeah. all of the medical records, and this is just, I'm going to keep it U.S. specific for now. All the medical records in the country got got taken. Then OPM gets owned. And then the, the secure folders for the background investigations for everybody who's had a clearance since the early 80s got out. I, I wrote an article on this for Breaking Defense. I'm like, why did it start in 84? Oh, yeah, because that's when we started using mini computers to capture all this stuff as digital records. So what do we got? We've got, uh, we've got all the medical records ever. We've got everybody with a clearance ever. We've got everybody with a higher clearance ever. So I know that, uh, you know, Quig... Quig has a couple of idiosyncrasies, but I also have a call chain of everybody who's close to Quig because that's who gets investigated in these things. I have a medical record showing that my daughter has a drug problem. She doesn't. Um, I've got, it's, it's basically a human intelligence bonanza, but it's for 300 and something million people. Good Lord, you know, how do you do that? Well, the Chinese have no shortage of people. They've got the ant farms, if you've ever heard of them, or you've got uh, 30, 40 million uh, college graduates who haven't gotten a job, they they are given um, government housing, and they are, haven't got much to do. So, okay, I'm going to give you a 10,000 person folder as make work, and I want you to enrich it. Uh, so everybody has an assigned handler. Everybody, and and I'm not speaking from any knowledge of the actual effort here. So if I'm speaking about something that's classified, I didn't know it. Uh, I've got enough people to handle handle the folders. I've got enough people to keep enriching them. And as they find intersections, hey, this guy just got promoted to uh, you know deputy undersecretary of whatever at state. Uh, look at his kid. Oh my goodness. Or look at his wife. Oh my goodness. Oh, we have we have a likely uh, target for intelligence. So that the, the the consequences of the manpower that they've been able to devote against this the looseness of the data that we've had that they've gotten their hands on is a tremendous human risk. And, you know, going back to the technical focus of the cyber side of the house, we're just not looking well enough at the security of key personnel within our, within our technical food chain. Uh, you know, the systems administrator who suddenly has a gorgeous Chinese girlfriend or the guy who's driving the Ferrari, et cetera. It, it, the human process that we had in the Cold War has to be revived, unfortunately. Well, similar to the, uh, the the Tesla breach, where you know the was was it the uh, one of the uh, developers I think was was approached for uh, information or to get access and, and and offered a lot of money for the for the uh, for the keys. 
Well, you know, if you look at um, Hansen or the NSA guy, I, I can't remember his name, that was the counterintelligence chief, they sold, they sold the country out for tens of thousands of dollars. Um, I, I got a really interesting pitch on what, what constitutes a likely target. And there's the usual motivators of greed, um, pride, et cetera, or, or lust. But really interesting is the the highest and best um, candidate is a man who had a bad relationship with his father, uh, and that that just psychologically makes them more likely to throw the patriarchal uh, figure of the country under the bus if they're not adequately rewarded. Uh, classic was uh, the uh, I, I don't remember his name the guy that was actually deep throat during the whole Watergate operation, uh, turned out to be the disgruntled deputy chief of the FBI who was angered when he wasn't handed the slot uh, to replace Hoover. Uh, and that's, that's really an invasion of privacy. But as you get more and more positions of trust, uh, you have to give up some of that expectation of privacy to be able to continue to handle secrets. And I don't know that we're doing a really good job uh, as a nation or even in corporate America, of understanding and, and going after uh, trust positions with both a, a, um, uh, a technical solution and a human, uh, human intelligence solution. No, but I think it's a very good point. It's the classic, you know, I need to hack your computer, but what about if I just put you in the trunk of the car, right? Drive you out to the desert and threaten you, right? It's that kind of scenario. <laughs> now, now I see how Devin plans to handle the tipping people. <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of Davin's diversity of thought there and in, in where he was going to get information and, and kind of where you were going and in getting information, how the Chinese are going and in getting information, this is another topic that, that we talk about with a lot of our guests is diversity within the industry, diversity within your security teams, um, just diversity of thought and how that makes you better than you know another organization that may have just like-minded people, right? So do, do you have any thoughts on on how this industry in general, which I think maybe over the last five five years has sort of started to branch out in, in a more diverse way, but thoughts on how diversity within this industry can improve it and why it's important that we do that. Yeah, uh, great point. Um, so I think diversity of thoughts is huge. Uh, so background, um, educational uh, levels. Uh, I think that the more artists we could bring in, honestly, the better to help us do things like visualize the problem. Um, the, the, uh, the, the rising number of women in the workforce help enrich the, the understanding of what the problem space is. You know, honestly, it's been largely Spurgs working hard uh, and not really getting the emotional factors involved in a use case. Um, that women, not saying that that's all women are bringing to the table by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but what, what happens when you force the, the teams to work together on a common use case, everybody sees it from a different perspective, and the more perspectives you have, as long as you have decent governance, the better. Um, if, if you're taking a look at your tactics, techniques, and procedures, and it's just a bunch of folks that have been brought up thinking the same way, you're going to miss the fact that the garbage run is where they got the information, or you're going to miss the fact 
that um, the the people who are involved have different motivations and that your customer is different. So the more the more you can get uh, a workforce that A, brings those perspectives to the table, visualizes differently than the highly STEM and math focused folks that have brought up, I've been brought up in, in the, um, the security world and get them to, to come in and help open the aperture to understanding the risks holistically, the better. And it's the holistic understanding that I think we've been lacking to date. And I, I think the diversity uh, solutions that are being put in place are going to greatly help that. Yep, couldn't agree enough. I think diversity is is uh, it brings the breadth of of knowledge, and you know, again, it's the famous saying. I think I've said this a load of times on here. You know, if everyone's thinking the same thing, somebody's not thinking. So we need to bring that kind of uh, out of the box attitude. You know, and uh, exactly right. Um, we're actually coming towards the end of our our uh, show map here now guys so uh we'd like to give our guests the floor to share anything important that they want to discuss um career advice uh insights or biggest lesson that you've learned in your career so is there anything you uh, would like to share with our listeners yeah and uh you know coming coming from a, a fairly tech-centric masculine background uh i i get embarrassed on a regular basis about how little i know or understand uh about a lot of the world. So one, travel. Uh, two, try and understand the other party. Uh, three, be social with your coworkers uh, and, and bring to the table uh, a variety of ways to get together and, and learn. Um, I, I just had a, a session with some folks as we were trying to figure out uh, new research ideas uh, and, you know, we're just sitting around having a drink at the bar. And I asked, I asked some of the younger folks I was with, uh, what have you got for research? Oh, nothing. And I started talking to them and they had this, they had some great ideas. They just didn't know how to take the market. So I guess for the young folks, talk to the old critters and, and vice versa, you know, take off, take off your silverback fur and, and listen to the, the uh, young folks uh, who have a completely different background than you do. And uh, I, I think one of the best, the best things that you could do is find a problem in your customer space, come up with an active use case, and then see how people uh, with diverse backgrounds understand it and answer it. I, use cases, good use cases, drive both your understanding of the problem and the derivation of the solution afterwards. And not enough people sit down Come up with, you know, in DOD speak, it's called an OV1, an operational view. Come up with a cartoon basically describing the problem. Uh, and, you know, it's like a Rorschach, chat, Rorschach test. Uh, you, you'd be surprised at how many people see that same thing very, very differently. Fantastic. Yes, great, great pieces of advice there. The uh, the industry is is moving um, or is, is broadening as I, as I can see it. And I think there's a lot of new blood coming in so. It'd be good to have uh, better communications up and down the age groups. Yeah, I, th I think the other thing too is if you're if you're really technical and you're really in the problem, and you're talking to your operational customer and they're looking blank, you're you you are basically shaking a calculus book in, a ch in front of a chimpanzee. And I'm not saying that pejoratively. It's that you're not speaking the same language, and that's on you, tech guy, tech girl. It's not on your operational customer. So you need to understand the problem space of the folks you're supposed to serve. Absolutely. And I think the, the chimpanzee reference reminds me of when I first started getting into pen testing and I felt like a chimpanzee at NASA. So, <laughs> so 
I fully, I fully agree. <laughs> uh, John, I think we have to close there because uh, we're running out of time, but um, I'd like to thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, hopefully we can get you back on before the end of the season. Um, so we can delve into some more amazing topics with you and uh, yeah. Thanks to our listeners. And uh, that's it for this episode of burn by the firewall. Thanks for the burn. Thanks for the burn.